Hey everybody, welcome back after our week hiatus. I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by coldshowergoods.com. Cold Shower was created to help facilitate personal growth by challenging you, by relating to you, by connecting with you, and by caring about you through the sharing of your story and the stories of your fellow human beings. Jump in, the water's cold. If you want to learn more, visit coldshowergoods.com for a layout of all blog posts, podcast episodes, as well as merch. We got t-shirts, we got tank tops, and we have crew neck sweaters, and much more to come. Once again, that is coldshowergoods.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cold Shower Podcast. I am here with a very good friend of mine, Jamie, who plays a very special, unique, and passionate role in our schools, and I think she has um, really good perspectives on the welfare of our youth, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Jamie, can you just start by saying what your role is in the school, and then maybe give us like what a typical day looks like? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been listening for a while, so it's awesome to um, finally get a chance to be on the Cold Shower podcast. Um, I'm also really excited about making a sweatshirt purchase in the near future from your merchandise on the website. So um, yeah, pretty cool to finally be on the podcast. So yeah, I am a school psychologist in a large suburban district in southwest Michigan, Uh, My district educates like between 8,000 and 9,000 students. Uh, There's three high schools, three middle schools, and eight elementary schools, so it's a pretty big district. I work specifically in two buildings, so I work in an elementary school that's K through 5, and then I work in a middle school that's grades 6 through 8, and a lot of my students who go to my elementary school then move on to my middle school when they move to 6th grade. So that's kind of cool. They're about a mile apart, so the schools are really close to each other, and it's cool that that, like, student, you know, my student body kind of moves on with me. Um, So most people do not know what a school psychologist does, so I get asked to explain my job a lot, and I thought over time it would get easier, but it's definitely still hard, so bear with me, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, But basically, like, at a basic level, I'm I guess a support staff member that works to help make sure students are making success in academics and social emotionally. So across all domains, so like improving academic achievement, um, promoting positive behavior and mental health, um, helping support like a wide like diversity of learners in the building, um, stuff like that. So usually it looks like direct work with students. sometimes consultation with teachers or other support staff members and connecting with any outside service providers or like doctors or clinicians. And then also a lot of like data collection and data analysis is part of my job too, um, just to kind of help guide educational decision-making. I go to lots of meetings. I also help like respond to any sort of like crisis or Um, If a student's having a hard time regulating during their day and they need a little Mm -hmm. break from the classroom. so What does regulating mean? uh, Regulating, like, meeting the demands of the classroom. So, like, if they are 
needing a little break, mm -hmm. whether they're like acting out or, you know, flipping chairs or, yeah. you know, I kind of am on call and kind of help support that student mm -hmm. take the break they need. So, yeah. and then another like huge part of my job is my involvement in special education. So in Michigan, um, it's kind of legally mandated that whenever we're identifying students who potentially need special education, um, a school psychologist is involved in that. So I do a lot of initial evaluations to look at whether or not students qualify for special education services in Michigan. So that's like a huge part of my job that's legally mandated, you know, following special education laws. And that usually is like me administering like standardized assessments, like an IQ test or achievement tests or different other like standardized measures to kind of like determine whether or not a student has a disability and then whether or not they require special education. So then I also help like support informing like what supports and services they need. So working with like a special education teacher to talk about like how we can close that gap for that student. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also work at like the district level. So like moving out from the building level at a district level, I'm doing a lot of like district data analysis. So working on different teams to look at like how our data is looking overall as a district, like academic data. And then I also help coordinate for our multi-tiered systems of support initiative. And then I also continuously meet with like other school psychologists within the district mm -hmm. to kind of inform our practices. Yeah. So that's kind of, like I said, it's a complex role. It's hard to explain all the things that happen, but yeah, with practice, hopefully I'll get better yeah, <laughs> at explaining it. For sure. So just from that explanation of like what you do in your job, the, the thing I can glean from it being a social worker. So I don't work in a school, mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely uh, some related practices in terms of working with clients or students mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, so you'd said that you have to focus both on individual students and also some of the bigger picture stuff, statistics yeah. and best mm -hmm. practice, yep. um, trying to line all that up for the future to ensure the welfare of our students. Mm -hmm. Is that difficult juggling? Um, I know it can be for me, the passion that comes into play when dealing with individuals mm -hmm. and then having to also understand the importance of the bigger picture stuff that maybe doesn't get you as excited or does it? I think that I definitely do get excited about that kind of stuff because I think that's how we make the biggest impact for, I mean, in public education, our job is educating by the masses. I mean, that's kind of the nature of public education. So I do have a specific um, interest in that because I've always been very interested in education. Um, I just think it's about finding a balance. So like making sure you're taking the time to connect to individual students that need you because honestly, there's some students that don't who, you know, um, are doing great and they might not necessarily need to know who I am because they have other great supports in place. So I think that I kind of enjoy both sides of it and it's just, you know, about finding a balance. Like I feel burned out if I spend too much time, um, you know, from that, bigger perspective lens. Like if I'm spending too much time in meetings where we're talking about, you know, different district level initiatives or building wide initiatives, like I need that time to kind of pull back and actually catch up with the student that I have a close connection with or something like that. So I do like both sides, yeah. but it definitely weighs 
heavy on you when you're not having that connection time yeah. with kids that you feel like you can see a difference in every right. day. So so it has to be a balance. That's I yeah. guess I'm just a little different in that because I'm always just like a person, like a client-centered, and I would just much rather just always be having meetings with clients mm-hmm. and then just skip the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I know that there is very important um, reasons for doing that paperwork, for tracking statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do to- I guess I totally get what you're saying in terms of if there's not that balance, you'll get burned out with one way or the other. So yeah. sometimes yeah. Mm-hmm. meeting with a student can be refreshing. Mm-hmm. It gets you out of the yep. you know, statistics or whatever. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then the opposite way um, too. So let's speaking individually about individual students, what are like some examples of issues or behaviors from a student that have been the most difficult to deal with? I mean, mm-hmm. you've been a school psychologist for how many years? So this is my fourth year, including the year that I spent as an intern. So it's my third year with this district that I've been in. They were my job right out of my internship year, right when I finished up grad school. So third year. Um, So as far as like issues of behaviors from students that are difficult, I think, first of all, I think like my frame of mind is probably a little unique in as like a a school psychologist and a school practitioner, I feel strongly that like any behavior that a student exhibits is like their way of communicating what they want and what they need. So I think it's up to adults to kind of figure out what they're trying to communicate and then we can try to understand how to help them. So like whether they're hitting, kicking, spitting, Mm -hmm. running from the building, swearing, um, refusing to do their work, throwing a chair, all of those things, I think, like at a basic level, they're trying to communicate something with us in maybe not the most positive way. But a lot of students, I feel, I, I see this pretty commonly where it seems like they have been so used to receiving negative attention their whole lives that by the time they get to school, that's like what's most comfortable for them. So they're so used to acting out and receiving attention that way that it's almost like, um, how do I want to say this? That's like their go-to, like mm-hmm. that's how they seek out attention and, and receive that. So it's difficult to deal with in a sense that it's almost, it's like heartbreaking. Like when they're so used to falling into that pattern, when they act out, that's the only way that they can receive any sort of attention. That's what they're most familiar with. And it's sad to see when they receive positive feedback and they're it's like they're almost like shocked like they don't know how to handle that so i think that's hard in a sense because it's like you're speaking a foreign language to them they don't know how to respond to that um but kind of like i said i just want to reiterate like the big thing is i think in schools we really try to focus on okay what are they trying to communicate to us and how can we teach them a better way and stop blaming the child for those behaviors so um, I think another area that's been very kind of like a hot topic in education and probably in like the social work field too is behaviors stemming from like trauma exposure. So yeah. that's been huge for us lately is like this trauma exposure and behaviors that stem from that because it's almost like a hidden disability. Like a lot of the times we don't know the details, which we probably don't want to know the details, but a lot of times it's like all these things that we're seeing on the surface level, there's so much more um, just from exposure of trauma, even for a student, you know, as young as five. Um, So I think that's been very difficult for schools to deal with. I think it takes a lot of like mental health lens to kind of help look at that. But like I heard a statistic lately, the CDC put out a statistic that 
35% of kids have more than two adverse childhood experiences. So like ACEs, I don't know if you've heard of like ACEs, um, that includes like abuse, neglect, any sort of household dysfunction, um, like a parent being incarcerated or mental illness. But that's like shocking to me that 35% of kids have at least two. So like all of those kids are coming into public schools and we a lot of times don't know all those details. So when we do see behavior, you know, whether it's related to like anxiety, depression, impaired learning and memory, um, difficulties with attention and focus we see too, or just like not knowing how to respond to a situation that can kind of stem from that trauma because like being in that trauma world creates like a toxic stress and like immediate and like long-term impact. So, you know, it overacts children's fight or flight and it impacts their brain chemistry and then, you know, obviously gets in the way of their learning. So I think that's been a huge area where public schools, at least my school district has been focusing heavily on um, to try to help combat yeah. that so those were definitely like two big ones that come to mind yeah and why part of why I wanted to get you on here is because you have this unique perspective of mm -hmm. you know you go to work every day and you're working with these students um, but then also you have access to the bigger picture as far as those statistics and things trends that you're seeing mm -hmm. um, but right now there's this I mean politically but um, that trickles down to people's decision-making regarding the education and the welfare of our mm -hmm. youth and I, I just want people before they take a side on cut this funding, add more funding, who's going to make these decisions for the schools, yeah. um, to understand that there a lot of this stuff is really deep rooted, yes. especially with yes. trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. And if you don't actively seek out information and read an article, try to gain an understanding of what trauma can do then you don't understand the impact it can have on somebody right. throughout their life. Yeah. And so there can be something that can happen to a person when they're very, very young. Mm -hmm. They won't even remember specifically what that event was, mm -hmm. but it manifests itself later in life. Yeah. Or there's examples of children overseas who are in these orphanages mm -hmm. and don't yeah. get any type of physical contact for the first mm -hmm. months of their life. And then they get adopted into what's probably a much better situation, say over here, mm -hmm. they have major like behavioral issues yeah. later. Mm -hmm. And that's due to that neglect, due to that trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it's not all cut and dry as we try to figure out how right. are we going to approach um, the education of our youth. Yeah, There has to be this deeper look into it. And so I'm glad that For we can sure. speak on that yeah. a little bit today. So you'd mentioned, that was my next question, is what does... What are some of the behaviors that you see? What do those stem from? And, and the examples you gave, you know, were trauma and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. So that's really um, that's really interesting. Do you want to speak more on that, or should I get to my next question? Uh, I, yeah, I think we could go. Okay. Um, do you think that children are more poorly behaved in school now than in the past? And before you answer that, um, I want to give my um, – I don't really have an answer, I guess, but my opinion on that is that mm -hmm. I think there's um, – Two, two ways of looking at it. So some people will sympathize very much with mm -hmm. um, behaviors that are taking place in school now. Mm -hmm. And then there's others who will just, you know, kind of have the bootstrap mentality and be like, yeah, well, if I'd have done that, my teacher would right. hit me with a ruler. Right, yeah. And that that's a cure-all, and it's not. And I've <laughs> yeah. spoken on things like that, that it's a very fine line between um, helping students hold themselves accountable for the behaviors that they have, mm -hmm. um, but also needing to guide them along 
you know, very closely. Mm-hmm. And so I'd spoken on how I grew up and my parents never hit me, never spanked me mm-hmm. um, one time growing up. Instead, when there was a behavior or something was taking place, mm-hmm. they approached it with conversation, which I'd said in the blog that I wrote was mm-hmm. much more painful to yes, have to go definitely. through that yeah. because the lessons I was learning were much deeper rooted than just getting spanked and then right. hoping the behavior would cure itself. Right. So our children more poorly behaved now than in the past. So I was really happy that this question came up because I, um, I just had to laugh a little bit because I've heard that. I feel like um, it's almost like a generalized statement that kind of floats around out there. And it kind of remem- it kind of reminds me of like, and I think this was kind of something you discussed on your, one of your other podcasts is like this idea about millennials and how, you know, I feel like it's one of those generalized statements that people are making like, Oh, back in my day, we never, you know, kind of like you alluded to just now. But so as far as like answering that, I think it's difficult to answer because obviously, I wasn't a practicing school psychologist in the past. Like I said, this is only year four. Um, So I guess my scope, my lens is a little narrow right now as I'm just starting my career. And I also think it's like hard to reflect on my own experiences in school because that doesn't really match up either. Like I, you know, I, I came from a very specific school with a very specific culture, you know, not a ton of exposure. So I, like I said, I think it's kind of a generalized statement. I think it's too hard to make that assumption that kids are more poorly behaved. Like when you think about, you know, behavior across time spans, there's so many different cultural factors that play in, which is kind of what you were mentioning earlier. Like when you think about how technology impacts Mm -hmm. a child's development or trauma or poverty, all of these bigger picture things that influence you know what we see at surface level as far as behavior goes um so it's a hard question to answer but i think you know times always change things always change what we're seeing always changes um and that's just kind of you know how history works yeah yeah there's no like one answer and when i'd spoken previously on millennials i was i was trying to um paint us in a better light but also challenge us and I think that that's something that each generation has to do because there's yeah. there's positive things from previous generations that we want to carry on so mm-hmm. the, the good things that I've seen my parents generation do I mm-hmm. want to continue that the bad things and the mistakes that maybe they've made as a generation I want to cut those out mm-hmm. and replace it with good things and mm-hmm. then the next generation should do the same thing um, so maybe the behaviors aren't necessarily better or worse. They're just different and they've been different, caused by right. different things. And I think it's always going to be that way. I don't think, and, I, and it's not only related to children. I think that's just the way life works when you have so many other cultural factors like compounding on top of one another. There's no way to predict or make assumptions either. Like, oh, kids are not behaved these days because their parents don't spank them. That's not, I, I don't think you can jump to making that causation connection because there's so many other things going on yeah and when people say broad statements like that Mm -hmm. to myself like I think man, I really want to educate them and engage in a deeper conversation but then I also don't even know if they're ready for that and so it has to be people like us who are willing to engage people in a conversation Mm -hmm. but then also people have to take responsibility for themselves and say okay I'm not really being inviting of a conversation, mm-hmm. so I need to work on that. But then also, um, do I need to, let's look at these other angles of things so then I can 
engage in an effective conversation and yeah. not because mm-hmm. if you if you make broad statements like that you just come off as ignorant and you're not right. inviting any type of conversation I now agree. I'm not to say that there aren't aspects of that people's view that's correct I do think there's mm-hmm. a time in everybody's life where you just have to take responsibility for your actions mm-hmm. so you're going to treat a junior in high school different than you're going to treat a second or third grader yep as mm-hmm. far as what responsibility they're going to be taking um, but also looking at why they're doing what they're doing and that's what's yes. really important and I think that's more so my frame of mind rather than saying kids are bad is how do we teach them to do better because I don't think any child functions from the mindset that they want to do the wrong thing I mean they're just kids so I really I mean I feel like um, you know as an educator that's a unique position to be in like as a mental health um, field and then also like you know for me as a mental health professional and then also as an educator when those two kind of merge to me um, that intersection looks like how do we teach skills so how so they can do better so yeah. Um, so yeah that's kind of how I feel about yeah that and I have like an experience that um, comes to mind for me so I was um, doing my internship at a juvenile um, center so mm-hmm. with kids that had committed crimes and then were either having to mm-hmm. attend um, the school, their school there because they'd been expelled so they could come in for the mm-hmm. day program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they were court mandated to be there. Yep. But then there was also the people who were in the lockdown portion of the juvenile center uh-huh. and then they could also come down to the day center mm-hmm. as long as their behavior was up yeah. to par uh-huh. and engage in the education. Otherwise they had to basically do their schoolwork like in the common area of the, uh-huh. of the juvenile center or even in their cell. And there was just an instance where there's this this really tiny kid who has undergone severe trauma, Mm -hmm. um, is not treated well by his peers in school, Mm -hmm. and something went wrong where he had gotten called out by a teacher for not completing his assignment, whatever it was, and it was definitely something that was his fault. He didn't Mm -hmm. take responsibility for it. And the frustration just boils over, and you can just see that he has no idea what to do with these emotions. Right. There's no way for him to put into words how he's feeling he doesn't have the capabilities of discussing Mm -hmm. um why he didn't do it or whatever with me or the teacher and so he just responds how he has always responded and that's by striking out at anybody Mm -hmm. within distance Mm -hmm. throwing chairs against the wall Mm -hmm. and so i was in the room with him it was just him and i and i was just making sure that um essentially that he wasn't going to actually hurt himself right making sure he stayed safe yeah and then after this went on for you know, five minutes and I'm dodging the box of crayons being thrown at yeah. me and things like that. Um, he just kind of collapses like in a corner yep. and just mm-hmm. starts to cry. Yep. So that was when I took the opportunity to just go over and I got on my knees and I was at his level mm-hmm. and we just had a conversation after yeah. he had, you know, gotten all his frustration in this mm-hmm. other way. And so I, I wish that that wasn't what he had to do. Mm-hmm. But after he did that, um, it became very clear that that was something that he did not want to do. Like he was not right. proud of that. He just didn't yes. have the skills to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And then after we kind of had this little conversation, um, after he cooled down. And so for me, I wasn't happy with how he engaged um, in that behavior, but it kind of recharged me as I saw this very frustrated, very scared kid mm-hmm. that wasn't throwing chairs at me because he wanted to kill me he was throwing chairs because he didn't know how to handle his situation at all yeah definitely a skill deficit you know an an area where he needs help with like he needs to be taught those skills because he probably wasn't and in the past throwing a chair 
is effective because it you know clears the room gets him out of the embarrassing situation he was in so it's all about like i said for especially with kids with trauma that fight or flight kicks in when it you know maybe shouldn't apply so i think that you know like we were talking about really plays into kids that we're trying to educate yeah so we talked about like trauma and neglect and those are things that are things that a lot of parents are either doing to their kids that mm-hmm. really harm them or neglect obviously things mm-hmm. that they aren't doing. Mm-hmm. So can you think of like any commonalities between the youth that you work with and what you think maybe their parents are all doing that's like the same or near the same behaviors too or actions or things they aren't providing that would like lead to some of the difficulties that you're seeing? Well, I would, you know, when I hear that question, it makes me kind of take a step back before I answer it because I would almost push us to have a different conversation. So kind of flipping that and making that more positive because I try really hard in my job because I'm an educator. I'm not a parent yet. I don't have kids of my own. Um, And I think that this is something that all educators really... I think as education as a whole really needs to push for is to is to avoid judging parents because we don't know enough about their experiences with school, their trauma from their childhood and how that impacts them. So instead of looking at like and it happens a lot, like you know, I think it's a negative thing for education, but people are constantly looking at like you know, what parents are doing wrong and what parents, you know, should be doing instead. And so instead of that, like I like to look at from a more positive, least, you know, as least judgmental as possible, things that parents can do that are beneficial mm-hmm. rather than looking at um, the negative side, if that makes sense. No, yeah. Um, I like that because I did kind of frame parents in a negative light, even with my question. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people have a tendency to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you'd said like, we don't know their situation, their experiences. So like there could be a parent who maybe isn't doing things the way that our parents would have done it. We both had a great set of parents, Yep. but they may be doing very well for their situation. Right. So yes, exactly. Some kids can get A's, maybe I can get C's, but my C's, I work just as hard for the C's as mm-hmm. I did for the other mm-hmm. you know, person's A's. And so, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting way of framing that. So I guess go ahead and answer the question then in the way that you liked it framed. Yeah, so like when I'm thinking about what parents can do for their children to kind of best prepare them or like uh, support their educational experience and make sure that um, they're partnering with the school. First of all, I think like, you know, putting the parents topic aside and I guess speaking generally because you and I are both adults and you and I, you know, don't have children. So I think that there's something that adults can do, even if they don't have kids who are tied to a school or, you know, attending school, adults that aren't like what I'm trying to say, adults that are not directly tied to public education. I think adults like you and I, um, the huge thing for me that immediately comes to mind is it would be beneficial if we kind of avoided passing judgment on the education system um, without first trying to understand it. Because I think that's been something that's unique for me is like as an educator, hearing what other adults like my age who maybe don't have a ton of experience with the world of education are very critical of 
schools and the choices they make and, you know, their outcomes and stuff like that. So that would be like my charge to adults as a whole is before you kind of jump into criticizing a school for maybe a decision they made or, um, you know, something that they're doing or scores on their standardized tests is like first talk to an educator and just gain some insight, um, which kind of reminds me of like your podcast theme. Um, gain some insight first, like before you jump to making conclusions about what schools should and should not be doing. Um, as somebody who works in education and has taken part in those important decision-making, you know, processes, it's like painful to hear other adults like bashing this world before they really understand what all goes into it. So I know that's kind of a little bit of straying from the topic, but I just, you know, wanted to throw that out there to empower other people who maybe don't have children. Yeah. Um, but as far as parents go, I think one big thing that comes to mind for parents of kids, you know, either in school or, you know, coming into school is to be mindful about the use of technology. That's been something that's been huge that I've seen um, just because of my time frame of when I've started is obviously iPhones, smartphones, tablets are a pretty common household uh, object these days. And sometimes it gets kind of turned into a babysitter or also like not just with kids using them, but also like parents using them. So like as an adult, I'm just as guilty as like, you know, scrolling through my phone when I should be doing something else. But then when you throw a kid in the mix and you have a parent who's maybe overusing technology, I've seen it really impact kids like because then there's not conversation going on. So um, that I've seen, I've witnessed like with technology, you know, obviously this is correlated. I can't say that this is definitely causing, but like huge issues with language, like Mm -hmm. students coming into school, not being able to understand vocabulary or express themselves or understand what somebody's asking them. Um, And like talking with speech language pathologists that I've worked with, they feel like pretty strongly that technology plays a big part in that because parents and kids aren't talking as much. Yeah. Can you, Um, before you go on, can you explain to people what correlation versus causation is? Yeah. So I think correlation is just when you're seeing things trend together without jumping to conclusions about like, oh yeah, this is definitely causing this. I think it's way too hard to make a jump to saying, um, to to that causation jump that's like very difficult because then you're pulling out all the other factors that are Mm -hmm. happening. But it's, I think it's beneficial to look at correlation because then you can have like hypotheses about what might be impacting so like in this case uh rise in use of technology and overwhelming amounts of kids who are coming into schools with uh below average language skills Mm -hmm. which really impacts them globally throughout their day like if they can't understand what their teacher is asking them or you know so i would say yeah that's the big difference is like noticing things that trend together and thinking about how they might impact each other, where causation, you're saying, this definitely causes this. Right. More definitive. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the technology, that's a big one. I think it's um, huge in my job today. And then another thing that comes to mind is parents can just, um, just by providing meaningful life experiences to their kids, they are doing more than you can ever imagine. So I'm not talking about like fancy vacations overseas or like buying them the newest, hottest toy or anything like that. I'm talking about like taking them to the park or like the fair or the beach or like playing outside with them or teaching them how to play with other kids or 
exposing them to like a diversity of like other people Mm -hmm. um, and teaching empathy for other people. All of those things are huge when they come into school because it helps them social emotionally. And once, you know, that stuff is in place, like we can handle the teaching. Teachers are obviously professionals in that area. So, you know, less focus on having your kid reading before they enter school and more focus on just exposing them. Okay. And I think that's like a huge thing for like some of my students who are typically living in poverty, it's like heartbreaking when they, you know, are living in poverty, they don't necessarily have means of transportation and they're missing out on all these life experiences like riding a merry-go-round or like going to the beach, like the simplest things that were a part of my childhood and probably a part of your childhood um, carry so much more weight. And like I said, nothing fancy, like literally just the most basic things in life that just expose kids and change their world worldview. Yeah. Yeah, I can think of like, you know, you'd mentioned the poverty mm-hmm. and just how much more, um, like, I think effort it takes for a parent yes. who's in poverty mm-hmm. to get those experiences for their kid. With, Definitely. You have to be very creative. So yep. I know as a kid, when times were lean in my household, that meant we weren't taking a trip to town and going and seeing a movie. Right. Um, instead, my mom would like put a blanket on the living room floor get some snacks and we called it like a movie picnic or something Uh, and so we would just all hang out like treat it like a picnic except we got to watch whatever movie was there Mm -hmm. and um so yeah it takes a lot of creativity if you don't have like the financial um, means to go and provide these experiences it's a lot more work exactly i mean if you have a family in poverty they may not just be able to jump in their car and go to the beach Mm -hmm. they may have to line up one or two buses to take them, use public transportation, Mm -hmm. um, and try to figure out if, you know, they have enough food stamps to buy the snacks for the, for the adventure they're going on Mm -hmm. and stuff. Just, it's different. It's a, it's a lifestyle that a lot of people, um, can't relate to and it's hard to even consider. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those are things that we just have to try to be aware of as best we can, I think. Yeah. But I think, like you said, even, you know, putting money aside, any parent should feel, um, a sense of how do I want to say this like control and um, like ownership that they can do that for their child even in the simplest of ways and I think that does a lot more for their child than they can ever imagine so I think that's a huge one yeah I, I'm sorry to keep jumping in I just have these examples of when I grew up and I think an issue some parents can have is they can think like well I'm not able to like take my kid um, to a hotel for a weekend, to uh-huh. a water park, yeah. or whatever it is, and, and they're comparing themselves to their peers or the other parents at the school, mm-hmm. um, and, and stuff like that, and really, yeah, if more parents realize, like, it's simply just the fact that you're giving them some type of experience, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be this big, fancy right. trip. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I it's... mean, there was a time my dad and mom drove us to see these old fossils, like, somewhere in the thumb we drove, mm-hmm. and I remember... It was not an exciting trip. The fossils themselves were not exciting whatsoever, but we got lost on the way. My dad refused to ask for directions. And so it was just this adventure of like driving around the thumb, teasing my dad about how he wouldn't stop to ask for directions. And then we (laughs) still give him a hard time about that to this day. And so it's just those like weird experiences a lot of times that can result in a really close connection with your parents or your kids. Right. And then also like if you think about it, you... And this is what I see in education impacting kids. So then when you were in school, like the next, within the, you know, next week or month, whatever, anytime, you're going to remember fossils. I went to see fossils with my family. So like Mm -hmm. you're sitting in science and the teacher mentions fossils and you're like, hey, 
I've seen that in real life before. Like I have this real life experience. I know what that means. I know what that looks like. Something as simple and maybe not super exciting then when you were like driving around the thumb and, you know, going to see these fossils. But when you're in science class and you make that connection, that real world connection, I truly feel like that promotes learning. So yeah. like students who lack that, who have never, like I was saying, like have been never been to the beach before, when you're sitting in like a Michigan geography lesson talking about the Great Lakes and you've never been to see one of them, you know, it's it's different. It impacts their worldview and it's like, it's hard to see because you want to give them those opportunities and you have to, you know, get around that huge poverty. It's a, it's a hurdle. So yeah. um, I know that sounds simple, just, you know, try try to expose your kid to as many different experiences big or small um and i think that goes a long way yeah. so um my last thing i guess that i would say parents can do as far as when they're partnering with their school for their child is to trust school staff and teachers and i think that's a huge and it goes both ways Teachers and educators need to trust parents too. But I think that's like a huge issue that I've seen is building that trust. And for many reasons, sometimes that trust isn't there. So parents who are defensive and untrusting of the school or, you know, not sure if they trust the school's intentions for their child or school staff who are judgmental towards parents about how they're raising their children. Um, and I think when we get over that barrier and we think about when we take a step back and remember that we all have the same common goal, it gets us all on the same team and obviously a better outcome. So like education's obviously unique in that way that there's so many stakeholders in play, like mm -hmm. the student, teacher, principal, school psychologist, parent, sometimes, you know, multiple parents that aren't together, like, you know, all these stakeholders. And I think once we can all trust each other, um, you know, things, things get easier, but like, also parents being able to trust us like that they can reach out for help. So like some of the things that we've been talking about, like parents deal with their own set of experiences and trauma um, or like parents, when you have a kid, you don't get like a manual on how mm -hmm. to raise your child, right? Like all you know is, well, my parents did it this way. And a lot of times that's the only exposure parents have. And then they're like handed over this kid and expected to just raise them. Like expectations for parents are huge like if you reach out for help like if you want to attend a parenting class or like you know get some mentoring or some ideas or counseling even like anything any of these supports for parents i find a lot of parents are defensive about that but i think that's because society's pressure on them to just know innately what they need to do like we don't put anybody else in that position like if you're going into a career we don't say oh just go ahead figure it out but parents i think are under a unique pressure where that's what they're supposed to do and they put that pressure on themselves so there's like lots of parents who you know any i'm i think any parent regardless of their background their socioeconomic status anyone could benefit from benefit from you know parenting training parenting advice mm -hmm. but it's such a stigma to reach out for that so i think that's part of this whole trust like parents need to be able to trust us and trust that they can come to us we might not have all the answers, but we can help figure it out, figure it out, you know, yeah. with the same common goal in mind. So, um, those are just the big heavy hitters when I think about what mm -hmm. parents can do, yeah. um, to help educators help their children. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like you said, there's a lot of stakeholders and yeah, we all want, um, the youth to be like active in our society in the future and able right. to contribute. And by contribute, mm -hmm. I mean, um, not just 
buying into the market, putting their money out into the market and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but also benefiting from jobs that are mm-hmm. there too. And so, yeah, it's like this development that needs to take place at a very early age and then have multiple people in that student's life help them develop these right. skills to like be, it takes a village yeah, kind of yeah to be contributors for sure um is there any part of your job that maybe you didn't expect so you were sitting through these courses in college yeah. you probably had in your head like a, a picture of what it would look like in the future mm-hmm. and then i think we all have that moment where we're like man no professor could have prepared me for like yeah. this part of my job yeah definitely i think like you know we've kind of talked about this when I think about my upbringing, I think I was very privileged. I grew up with, you know, good parents, using that term, I guess. I don't want to be, like, sounding judgmental, I guess. But parents who, um, you know, I had a good home. They supported my education. They provided anything for me to succeed. So I think I have a somewhat naive or sheltered worldview coming into education, Um just thinking about all the challenges that other kids face because I just didn't have to go through those and I wasn't as connected when you're going through it you don't realize like it's kind of hard especially when you're a kid to take a step out and think about you know um, what it looks like for other kids Mm -hmm. but so as a kid who always like loved learning and loved school and succeeded in school it's really really hard for me to see students who struggle or hate school like especially when I'm thinking about all the work that goes into a school day or like how much time and energy a teacher puts into every single one of our students. So it's like literally heartbreaking when a student hates school and it's not their fault. It's just, you know, they're not having the best experience for a variety of reasons. But that is something that I don't think anybody can train you for is like, you know, you just want so badly to connect with the student and you want their, you want just the best for their education. So, um, not something that I really had to, see until you're you know in the field but I think it's also hard there's been times when I've really connected with students and I want to make a greater impact on their life lives outside of school that can feel pretty frustrating because Mm -hmm. I know they spend a big chunk of their day at school but I know um, they're going home at the end of the day and you just really connect sometimes with especially kids like kids are great so it's like so hard when you really feel connected to one and you're like oh there's got to be more, mm-hmm. you know, and summer break is hard yeah. too. I mean, it's great. I mean, I get, you know, three months vacation, but it's very challenging, like knowing some students go home to like, you know, um, struggling environments and they rely on school for a safe space and for food or to get their basic needs met. And I definitely have a lot of worry for them. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to come back in the fall? Am I ever going to see them again? So those are things that are you know, very personal that impact me and that, um, I just don't think you can ever be prepared for when you enter the field. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for sure. It's interesting too, um, that like you mentioned, you even have your own like biases, I guess, or you you don't know what you don't know because of how you were raised. So it's just a matter of being open to, um, other people's experiences and understanding how that affects them, even Mm -hmm. if they're, they're different than yours. Um, maybe could you give like an example of a time where there was just a student who really should not have been doing as well as they're doing Mm -hmm. and what you think allowed them to do that? So a student that just had things stacked against them and was still succeeding. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I honestly, I mean this like in every sense of the way that literally different students amaze me every day 
with progress that they make. But I will say, because this is only my third year in the district, um, I don't get to see those long-term effects. And that's that's the way that lots of teachers have to function day to day. They don't always see the payoff at the end of it. So it's kind of hard to like, you know, say this was the perfect recipe for this kid to succeed in these ways. It's not always as like clear cut as that or definitive, definitive as that. Um, but I feel like, you know, I work with students with disabilities, like students who require special education and the smallest things for them is what impacts me the most. Like we have, you know, I don't want to really reveal too much because, you know, I want to be confidential and, mm -hmm. um, you know, be respectful to my students and their families. But, you know, I've had students coming in with significant disabilities coming into middle school for the first time. Parents are terrified, like they're going to get lost. They can't use a locker. They don't understand like a calm. There's no way that they're going to be able to move from class to class. They're going to be too anxious. I won't be able to get them here on time. They don't know how to wake up in the morning. Um, these are all these things that, and parents rightfully so know their kid best. And they're like, these are all the hurdles we're going to have to overcome. And then like seeing kids do that, something as simple as like opening their locker by themselves. I'm like super pumped about, especially right now, cause it's the beginning of the year. So that's like definitely a big celebration is like this kid open their locker for the first time by themselves. Mm -hmm. And they're like excited about that. Cause they're now a middle schooler and they can do that. And it's like super cool to see, or like navigating the building with confidence at my middle school. It's a pretty big building. Um, students who are attempting an academic task for the first time since I've known them, like kids who are shut down and won't even pick up their pencil because school has been so hard for them for so long that they just don't even try anymore. And then one day they pick up their pencil and even if they're just copying something on the board, they're engaged. You're like, what, you know, it's like the small stuff like that, that I think you have to, as an educator, you have to look at those because like I said, we don't always see the big payoffs. They might move. You might not be in touch with them when they graduate. You know, you don't know where they move on to in their adult life. So I think it's day by day, simple things like having a good day, not getting in trouble. Oh, you didn't swear to anybody today. Like, yes, mm -hmm. progress, like awesome. So, um, you know, that's just kind of my mindset that keeps you going when you yeah. think about students who have, you know, so much stacked up against them and how they succeed every day and amaze me every day. Yeah. Yeah. And it speaks to like how important it is to encourage people, even when they're like doing something that should seems menial or simple, yes. like you said, copying off the board. Right. But that is a very big accomplishment for that student. It might right. not be for the next student. Right. But being present in that student's life, encouraging mm -hmm. them and saying like, I'm really proud that you did that. Mm -hmm. And now I think you're going to be capable of yeah. much more tomorrow. Yeah. Too. And it builds confidence in them. Mm -hmm. Like when they see that, like, I can do this, it just compounds on time. It's a step in the right direction. But yeah. I think, and I kind of forgot to mention this. I think this was part of your question. Like what leads to that? I think the biggest thing that I've noticed as like, I don't want to say the cure all, but like the easy place to start is building a relationship. Like you are not going to get anywhere with a student or anyone in life for that matter if you don't take the time to build a relationship first. If you don't make that effort, like you can't get to, especially in school, you cannot get to all the other things that you want to accomplish with that child if you don't focus on building a positive relationship first. And I think that's been something I've seen time and time again that has a crazy impact for the students who are struggling the most is just being there for them and letting them know that like you're just a safe person to come to and mm -hmm. that you're kind of in their corner and you're going to do anything for them you have to prove yourself first 
Yeah. Um, just like it is with, with adults, you know, kids aren't any different. They just want to be respected and listened to and kind of know that they have someone in their corner. So I think that's like, like I said, not a cure all, but for me, my focus every time on, you know, whoever, whatever issue we're dealing with, whatever deficit there is, focusing on that first can do a lot more than you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like back to that in terms of like, what that student is doing. So the example was copying something off the board and it seems like a simple thing, but don't overlook it and be sure to encourage them and let them know uh-huh. that that you're proud of them for doing that. I get that a lot with clients that I meet with. So I have a lot of caregivers of mm-hmm. people with dementia mm-hmm. who come to me and I might be the first professional that they've met with since their loved one's gotten a diagnosis of dementia. Mm-hmm. And they'll just come to me, they'll sit down and they'll just be like, I have no clue what I'm doing. So then I'll go from there and I'll ask them, you know, I'll, first I'll acknowledge that and I'll say, you're in a very difficult spot. Mm-hmm. Like I commend you for the, even just coming to this meeting. And then they'll start to explain what they do each day to ensure the care of their loved one. And a lot of times they're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. but they just haven't been told yet that they're doing right. the right thing. Yeah. And so they'll tell me, you know, I do this, I fix breakfast, I take care of them this way. And I'm like, man, you're doing such a good job. You Mm -hmm. just didn't know it. And so then Mm -hmm. I'll encourage them. And so then they can leave at the end of that meeting and be like, wow, maybe I do know a little more than I thought I did. And so then they're going to be, yeah, that Mm -hmm. much more effective. And so that's some of it too. Like we think, oh, that person probably knows they're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. My wife knows that dinner was good tonight. I don't need Mm -hmm. to say it to her. No, we always want to make sure that we are giving people credit. Almost, you know, doing it, over the top sometimes just letting Mm -hmm. that person know um that what they're doing that you care about it and that you're you're glad that they're doing it yeah it's like recommended in a classroom that this is a fun fact teachers need to and it's hard but um kind of like uh best practice i would say is teachers making four positive comments to every one negative comment Mm -hmm. or correction so when you think about that ratio like that's what we're striving for in schools but that's we recognize that that's what you need to do with yeah. kids in order for them to receive that positive attention and feel comfortable with it. And it, you know, promotes positive behavior and improves school culture. So it applies, like you said, big picture applies, but then also, you know, down to a science and schools, you know, we're really focusing on doing that because we know it has lasting impacts. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So as we're, we've been going on, I want to hit like one last um, topic here. And I know I'm just going to share my personal view on this politics and all those things trying to it can get very contentious in terms Mm -hmm. of people's opinions on where money should go should we cut this from that and all that type of stuff and so I have a couple things that I can think of where I'm just like we need to prepare for the future Mm -hmm. and so that can mean things like the environment so that's a really hot topic right now Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of um, differing opinions on that so some people think this isn't really um, having as negative an, an effect on the earth as what we think it is. And then there's other people who are like, dude, we need this earth a hundred years <laughs> from now. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's up to us. We're doing things that, you know, may not be reversible and it's mm-hmm. very serious to our environment. And so why are we mortgaging our future mm-hmm. for the, the things that we're doing today? And I have that view on education, um, I don't know the ins and outs of the, the public education system and the mm-hmm. funding and how all that stuff works. Mm-hmm. You would know a little bit more about that. But anytime that I hear like we're, we're cutting funding, 
um, from this school because their standardized tests weren't up to par Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, um, then I just think at what cost are we doing that? Yeah. Because we're essentially, it seems like taking money from a place that needs it and that plays a huge role Yeah. and I mean a huge role in our society. Yeah. And so it's hard for me to understand, um, the opposite side where that can be seen as a positive. And I'm, I'm fully admitting that I don't understand the full argument from either side. And so maybe I shouldn't even be speaking on it. Um, but just from what I know and my opinion, thinking mm-hmm. these are the people who are going to be running the country, the towns, mm-hmm. the cities um, in the future. So how do we best equip them? So mm-hmm. I guess for those that want to see the public education system improved, I think we all want that at yes. least. So whether that's through more money or less money, I don't know. Right. Um, but what should we know regarding maybe like policy or some of the things that you, yeah. you hear and have to deal with? Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, my first, my first thought that comes to mind is something that we've already touched on today quite a bit, but I think that it's so important for people to understand how bigger social issues impact public education. So when we're thinking like, oh, the public education system is failing, we need to take a step back and think about all of the other things that build into that, 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 um, make that happen or at least contribute to that happening. So like one example that I've seen like in my job in the past couple of years is poverty and its impact on students. And we've already spent some time talking about this, but a more specific like concrete example for me when I was like, whoa, that's, you know, that's a huge correlation. I mentioned earlier, like a big part of my job is um, data analysis and looking at district-wide data and school-wide data um, specifically for like academic achievement and other areas too, but academic achievement, we're looking heavily at reading, heavily at math. So our students meeting benchmark in those areas. And if they're not, how do we intervene and how do we provide supports to kind of help close that gap? But that district and um, building level data analysis has kind of helped me see like some hard data for my school um, that really shows like the impact that poverty has. So like every year we look at like not just like building wide data, but like we look at specific at risk populations and their levels of academic achievement. So um, one area we look at is economically disadvantaged students. So students who have like free and reduced lunch. Um, students coming from poverty. So we look at specifically like how is that population doing in terms of meeting benchmark and reading, meeting benchmark in math. And at the end of the year last year, we had a total of 40 students in our building of like almost 600. 40 students were well below where they needed to be for reading. So intensive needs in reading, like we need to catch them up right now. They're well below. Reading's a huge skill to have as you move through school. 40 students total in the building. 31 of them were identified as economically disadvantaged. That is like 78% of our building's struggling readers also have that struggle on top, that they're coming from a home of poverty. So 78%, that's like huge. That tells me that there's more in play here. It's not just whether a child can read or not. Or likes to read. Or likes to read or if they're motivated or not, or like if they have a good teacher or not, like that is too big of a data, glaring data point for me that I was like, whoa, that's crazy, mm-hmm. that's crazy. Um, so I think that's just one example that was very striking to me. And so like I said, before we pass judgment on whether or not a school is passing or failing or you know any of those things, we need to take a step back and think about, 
all those other things in society, like all these other social issues that impact education. And poverty is just one example. There's many more. But so that is like my one charge, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, when I'm thinking like about that. But then the, the next point is, you know, something I feel strongly about. But we need to, as a society, start treating educators better. Right now, there is like an education crisis. Teachers, there's a huge shortage of teachers um, and also school psychologists. There's a shortage of my role. Um, there's not enough of you know, school psychologists in Michigan, there's tons of job openings. Um, And when I think about all the things I can do within a school, that's crazy to think about a school has a position open that they can't fill. But that goes for teachers too. There's a crisis like across the nation. And then also colleges are noticing severe drops in students who are enrolling and planning to be teachers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in the meantime, public education, like um, student population, like enrollment for students is like growing but we have less teachers to educate them, less educators. But like two thirds of teachers are leaving the field. They're leaving before they retire. So they're leaving because of all these different reasons, like not getting enough money or, you know, issues as far as like support from administrators or, you know, lots of different reasons why teachers Mm -hmm. leave the pressures of the job. But like the attrition rate for teachers is 8%, which is like so high. So 8% like to leave the job, but that's like, much higher in areas that are like high poverty communities. So when we have that high of a turnover, it creates like a huge issue for a school and how we're running the school. And like 8%, I did some research, research that's like twice the rate found in high achieving areas. So like when we're comparing ourselves to like Finland who has high achievement or like Singapore, Canada, areas of Canada, like that's crazy. Like that turnover rate is double of what we're, you know, what we're seeing. So I think like in order to help with that, we have to start treating educators better. We have to start compensating them for what they do on a day in, day in, day out basis. Um, We need to especially like think about the high needs school districts that aren't keeping their teachers or maybe keeping a teacher for a year or two before they get burnt out and leave. Um, looking at like forgivable loans or like public service loans that, you know, scholarships or something like that, like helping to pay for teacher training. Um, but I think that's just a huge area where I, it's a little, I'm, I'm obviously biased because I am an educator, but if we want to see the public school system improve, like I said, we have to start treating educators better so we can keep them Mm -hmm. in the field. And right now, like I said, that's a, that's a huge area of need. We're not retaining teachers and we're also not bringing them in so um you know looking at policies that improve that Mm -hmm. i think would be my number one um number one pick if i if i had to say yeah yeah i think you know like i ended my question was that i think pretty much everybody no matter what side of the aisle you're on wants to see an improvement in the education Mm -hmm. system um, it just we differ on how we're gonna get there. Right. And I have a friend who um, we don't agree on a lot politically, mm-hmm. but we're friends, and so we have these conversations. And he's explained it to me um, in certain like areas and of the state and districts and stuff um, that there's these policies in place or the same people making the same decisions over and over yeah. in that district. And that those people that were voted in are reflective of the vote of that um, Mm -hmm. part of the state, but that they continue to mismanage the money. And so his view was not, um, let's 
cut the funding. Mm-hmm. He's like, we just need people that are going to be more effectively distribute the money and know yeah. what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to find common ground in that too, because yeah. you can't always just throw money at a problem. Right. Like it's going to go away. We have right. to have people that can effectively put the dollars where they need to be. Definitely. And so I think that both sides could kind of move a little bit closer to one closer another. Closer together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On some of that. But you know, again, I don't know like all the ins and outs of that. I just know that it can be a hot topic of, you know, some people say teachers aren't paid high enough and then other people say well they have the benefits of being in a union and so really they're harming mm-hmm. themselves by their participation in unions and mm-hmm. stuff like that and um it's always can be a little bit of a bit of an argument depending on who you talk to so yeah i was curious what you thought and i just challenge like those people um who maybe think teachers make what they deserve or you know whatever um to just go spend a day with a teacher or talk to a teacher about like what they do every day because it's so much more than just being a glorified babysitter. And I'm not a teacher, so I feel a little removed from that. Like I, you know, I work with teachers and I can see that without being like, I'm a teacher and I know what I do every day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I see so many great teachers uh, who make a huge impact and it's literally like an art and a science to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, right now that's just not the level of appreciation they get. So like I said, um, you know, before you jump to any sort of those decisions. Like I'm not saying, you know, people should feel one way or the other, but just um, put yourself out there and get to know a teacher or educate yourself and talk to someone who does this every day because I think you'll gain more insight and then we'll be able to kind of move closer together. And that goes, you know, the same for me, being exposed to people who have a different view, um, having those, those conversations and opening that dialogue up so we, like you said, can kind of close that gap and come together and get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very fine line because I know for social work, um, people can look at that field. You know, I, I see it all the time. Someone asks me, what do you do for a job? And I say social work. Yeah. And their eyes will kind of glaze over as they try to figure out what to say to me next. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> right. That sucks. Yeah, uh, like you must uh, you're poor. Must yeah. be really rewarding. <laughs> yeah. I get that one a lot. And yeah. it is. Like I always tell them, yeah, it's very rewarding yeah. a lot of times. But then there's days where I think I am I should be getting paid double what I'm getting right. paid for, oh, yeah. for the for things sure. that I'm dealing with. For sure. And I knew that going in when I chose my degree. Yep. I knew that social work was not a highly paid field, at least, you know, just for having a bachelor's. Mm-hmm. And so there's days where I need to just remind myself of that. Like, you are where you chose to be. Right. But then there's other days where it's like, there's no one else within 10 miles that wants to be doing what I'm doing at this moment as I'm dealing with this crisis. And so we need to consider both of those things um, too, because teachers, they're always going to be playing a very important role in society and they always have. And then, um, I don't know, are you considered an administrator? No, I would say I'm more of like an itinerant support staff, um, you know, obviously not a teacher, but I, you know, fall under the educator realm. I would say I'm like a, you know, below administration, but more of like an itinerant support staff available. Um, but you know, I just think like you said, you don't go into this profession, just like with social work, you don't go into education, like trying to chase the dollar clearly. But then to me, it's like crazy that we're exploiting those people whose hearts are in the right place. And they like, want to make a difference in the world like to the point where like we're taking all their skills and all their time and all their energy and not compensating them mm-hmm. accordingly so that's just crazy to me like you know and that's just a societal it's a shift you know that takes time to happen but um you know like i said that's why i feel like it's so important to start supporting and rallying behind teachers and you know treating them better because 
they come into it for the right reasons. And those are the people we want to keep and we're not keeping them right now. Um, And, you know, creating this shortage for ourselves as we have more and more kids enrolling and needs are getting bigger and bigger. Like we're not just teaching kids um, how to read or which are huge skills. Don't get me wrong. But the things that you and I have also talked about, like the social emotional, you know, skills, the regulation skills, being able to handle what life throws at you. Those are all, those all fall under what a teacher does. So it's a big job, and I just think we need to start supporting them more in that. So it's just interesting that, you know, that's an area that will, I think, continue to be something we need to focus on for a long time because change is slow. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, Jamie, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I guess if you could take anything from this episode, at least uh, what I've taken is that um, as I become a parent in the future, perhaps, that I need to be an active participant in their life in and out of the school, mm-hmm. be a support for um, teachers, faculty, administrators, um, someone that they can count on so we can rally around my child and the child, the other children of the school to ensure their success. And then also as you try to decide um, where you stand with some of the politics and the funding and, and what you think needs to be done to improve our education system, to just do research on both sides of it and figure out mm-hmm. you know, what the best... Uh, action is to be taken on some of this stuff so again jamie thank you for uh coming in today i appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me um and allowing me to kind of share um what my job is like and you know just my opinion on things so i really appreciate it i think it's important um to be able to be heard and you know be able to open up the conversation so i appreciate what you're doing yeah thank you and thank you for listening bye bye